I was just putting together a new exhibit for Valentine's Day. I do always enjoy a holiday based around a public execution. I am not exactly certain what this exhibit shall be. Perhaps if we go have a rummage around in the attic, we can find something for the season. But no hurry. Let's pour ourselves some drinks and have a story or two first, shall we? Our stories this evening will be about women. Our first author is Deborah L. Davitt. Miss Davitt was raised in Reno, Nevada, but received her M.A. in English from Penn State. She currently lives in Houston, Texas with her husband and her son. She is known for her Other Earth novels, rising nominated poetry, and an increasing number of short story publications. For more about her work, visit her online at edda-earth.com. It will be read for us by Mr. Richard Elin. Honeyed Tongue by Deborah L. DeWitt Carriages rattled past the house, which bore the name Apis over its door, and perhaps surprisingly, the royal arms discreetly painted beside it, along with the words, By appointment to His Majesty the King. The signage made no mention of which provisions this house might purvey to the royal one. Gas lamps in the street outside lent an unhealthy tinge of green to the faces of those who passed through the house's doors. Not that many people here looked healthy anyway, but even invalids had needs, and so they came, standing shoulder to shoulder with the hail in the confines of the cell-like lower rooms. And the girls of the house, wasp-waisted, uniformly honey-blonde, and just as uniformly clad in tight black jackets over ruffled velvet skirts with tiers of black and gold, bustled about, offering guests drams of whisky with honey in amber-tinted glasses. A visitor squinted as one girl approached. "'Do you have a regular?' she asked him. "'My word, I can't tell you apart. You all look precisely alike.' We're all sisters, she murmured. Do you perhaps recall a name? Melissa? Of course, I'll have her down directly. A newcomer entered, leaning discreetly on a cane as he paused to take a ragged breath and observe. He appeared to be young and pale, but had hectic colour in his cheeks, and beads of sweat bedewed his brow. Coughing genteelly into snowy handkerchiefs might be how operas depicted consumption. 
Reality held desperate, ragged gasps for breath and bloody spittle. The buzz of voices in this place almost concealed a sort of throbbing hum, which, when he placed a hand upon the wall for balance, he could feel through the wooden frame of the building. The rumours didn't lie. Satisfied, he found a chair in the corner. His eyes drifted to the bar, behind which an enormously fat grey-haired woman held court, her bulk barely constrained by her corset. She laughed and sent her girls out to work the crowd, where they bobbed and edged around one another in the tight confines, a comical, bumbling little dance. The young man nodded and then coughed rackingly into his kerchief, till he shook with the effort of sucking air into his lungs. Outside the house, a black carriage came to a halt. Sable horses pulled it, each with an ebon plume rising proudly above their manes. A woman emerged from the carriage, carrying a small satchel, her back straight as a sword. Swathed in black, her face concealed by a weeping veil, she strode towards the door. A watchman hastily barred her path, murmuring, You don't want to go in there, ma'am. It's not a place for a decent woman. If you're here to evangelise, well, they don't take kindly to Methodists. A pale face lifted under the dark veil, and then she opened her satchel, showing the watchman the contents. Don't be a fool, she replied sharply. This is what I'm here for. His face paled and he muttered, God save the king, before moving away. Inside, the buzz of voices lowered to a whisper as the woman entered. The young man thought he could smell a hint of smoke drifting in her wake. She cut through the crowd to the bar and knocked her knuckles there peremptorily. Then, with great ceremony, she removed a long black crepe ribbon from her satchel and set it on the bar, followed by a photographic plate. Even at a distance, the young man knew what it was. The image was too sharp, too clear to have been taken of any living soul. Only the dead held properly still for photography. "'I have come to tell what must be told,' the woman announced coldly. "'King Edward is dead.' Long live King George. The room fell silent, but through the walls the young man could still feel a feverish hum. Behind the bar, the fat woman bowed her head regally. You have honoured the compact, she wheezed, and we'll honour our end of it. Long live King George. The woman in black lowered her head and then turned and left. Behind the bar, the heavy-set woman shouted, in honour of the new king, all drinks are on the house, which lifted the pall that had settled over the crowd. A sudden vivid recollection assailed the young man. On the day his father had died, he'd watched his mother approach the wicker domes of the beehives behind the house, where she'd knocked before hanging crepe ribbons upon them, and then had whispered her husband's name to the bees. He exhaled. Confirmation. The house was precisely what rumour named it. At that moment, one of the wasp-waisted women approached, lighting on his lap like a butterfly. You're new, she murmured, playing with his cravat. 
What can I do for you? I'm Mellifera. Honey bearer, he translated and coughed into his hand. A saucy smile. Aren't you clever? Educated too. Perhaps a little overly so. A laboured inhalation. I'm here for special services. Isn't everyone, she teased. A wheezing chuckle. More special than most. I'm here for poisoned honey. Her face and eyes emptied. Do you understand what this entails? She asked quietly. He dabbed sweat from his forehead. I'm a dead man who's yet to fall over. I've heard rumours that a life now and again serves a compact. One that keeps the royal arms by your door. My death may as well be of some use, and I'd prefer less pain and lingering. She stood, pulling him along behind her up the stairs. They passed private rooms from which he could hear various groans of passion and tried to stifle the laugh that threatened to become a cough. Something amuses you? Mellifera asked. I think most of the men here would be heartily offended to realise that they're just flowers to you. He choked down the cough and added, you just collect our pollen and make it into something ah, sweeter, don't you? Mellifera gestured him through another door. You are educated, she repeated as he took a seat on her bed. The room, he noticed, was a perfect hexagon. I've read too much Darwin and studied too much entomology, dear lady. He loosened his cravat. Will the poisoned honey that rumour speaks of ease me out of this life gently? And am I right to suppose that in order to raise a new queen, you'll require a human body in which to encase the egg and nourish the larva? The horror of it didn't impinge on him any more than the nearly fetishised trappings of mourning that his society employed. Photographs of the dead posed beside living family members, hired mourners, mourning bands and all the different colours worn when in half-mourning, sometimes years after a death. He managed a brittle smile. I suppose you'll need a new queen soon. The one downstairs seems older than the rest of you. Clever boy, she murmured. But you don't have quite all the details correct. She straddled his lap and he gently edged her away. I appreciate the thought, my dear, but any effort more strenuous than a gentle amble will likely drown me in my own blood. He put aside the thought of an embolism in his ravaged lungs with effort and pinned a smile to his lips. What have I misunderstood? Mellifera kissed his cheek tenderly. We're bees, darling, not wasps. We're quite domesticated. Your people let us live because we supply your monarchs with some of our royal jelly. Keeps them long-lived and healthier than they've a right to be, considering their hereditary blood diseases, she explained drawing her skirts up, giving him a flash of, yes, a foot-long stinger, as well as more womanly parts. He blinked dizzily, wondering how none of the men in the other rooms had ever noticed this minor detail before. Perhaps they did. Perhaps they like being stung. Special services, after all. A headshake to clear his mind. Royal jelly, like what makes a larva into a queen, he paused. Wait, 
isn't the jelly like honey made from... Oh, God. Nectar and pollen, he ended weakly. It is, she replied with equanimity. I suspect that the royals don't think about where it comes from any more than humans think about how bees vomit nectar up from their honey stomachs and then chew on it until it becomes the golden delight you all crave. She stroked his face with light fingertips. Also, if your part in the compact worked the way you thought, it would be our queen in here with you, not me, crushing you beneath her as she jammed a fertilised egg into your body. Be glad it isn't so. She kissed his lips, humming under her breath. He tasted sweetness there and responded to it feverishly. This is the poison, he thought distantly. Thank God, in her mercy, she's putting me out of my misery quickly. His mind became hazy and a burning sensation spread through him, starting with a prickle at his lips. The room skewed, the humming reverberating in the building echoing through him now, too, and the world slipped away and he went with it. Sometime later he awoke, surprised and obliquely disappointed. Damnation! I'm not dead, he whispered. The words didn't tickle his chest. No pressure, no sensation of having to struggle for breath, but the world looked odd. The light slipping through the shutter had a violet tinge to it that made the bedsheets glow. He tried to sit up, and the motion sent his bedmate tumbling aside. No, you're not, Mellifera said sleepily. A happy circumstance, I trust. Usually it doesn't work. Most men willing to give their lives are usually in too poor a condition to survive the process. And then we have to drop the body in the Thames. She propped her head on her hand, looking at him speculatively. You, on the other hand, survived. You're one of us now. Oh, not a sister, she added, as he looked down hastily, verifying that he hadn't grown breasts or lost anything important. A drone. No sting, see? She pulled the sheets partially back, showing him that they were both mother-naked now, and gestured indicatively. A moment of stark panic. Uh, what? Dizzy thoughts as he tried to understand the new reality around him. Drones don't have wings. Did I lose my legs? He tried to wiggle his toes and felt movement there to his exquisite relief. Don't worry. We take good care of our drones. We have so very few... We certainly won't let you go anywhere that you could be hurt, she informed him sweetly. You're important to us. Only drones can give us more sisters, if they service the Queen. She laughed at the horrified expression on his face. And drones can make any sister into a Queen. It just means having to fight the old Queen, or founding a new hive. Mellifera rolled on top of him, kissing him thoroughly. Ever thought of going to America, she murmured, or India? He shook for a moment, pulling his lips away from hers. Is there anything else I should know, he asked, fighting apprehension. This seems the sort of gift that should be given to the highest in the land. Health, long life, perhaps captivity, but... Mellifera stroked his face. 
There is the small matter of our diet, she told him, and he gagged suddenly. Oh, don't look like that. Drones don't gather pollen, she chided. You'll feed from my lips or my sister's. Close your eyes and think of king and country. She kissed him again. Usually works for me. And tasting the honey on her lips, he swallowed and surrendered to his domestic captivity. Good heavens, I... I don't know what to say about that one at all. I certainly shan't be taking up beekeeping any time soon, that's for certain. Our next story is from author Susan Tatel. Ms. Tatel grew up in Chicago. She lives now in Minnesota. She has not yet resigned herself to the winters, but has been known to say, Oh yeah, you betcha. Unironically. She is a viable Paradise graduate, has been published by McSweeney's.net, and blogs at the imaginatively named SusanTatel.com. This story will be read by an old friend of mine, Ms. Gabrielle Riel. Seated by Susan Tatel. Do you have any well-known artists? The woman in the vintage Chanel asks, a hint of trepidation in her voice. This is a big decision. Of course! Heidi, the proprietress, places a reassuring hand on her shoulder and guides her into the showroom. It's a sleek, nearly empty space. How do you feel about Klimt? His paintings are beautiful, but a little macabre. All those skulls. Perfectly understandable. Heidi clicks her tongue amiably. Any other options? Picasso, though not a lot, and Seurat. I shouldn't mention this, since there's a wait list. But Monet could be arranged. Monet? The woman's face brightens. Visions of water lilies dance behind her eyes. Heidi produces a tablet from a drawer. With a few deft swipes, she presents a buyer's guide for Monet. I'm afraid that's over my budget. The woman deflates. He is sought after, Heidi nods. What about Toulouse-Lautrec? We have a surplus at the moment. The woman's brow furrows as she tries to place him. He did the can-can girls? Frequently, Heidi deadpans. Wasn't he a midget? He had a bone disorder that stunted his legs, but his talent was immeasurable. Still, I don't think... She glances my way as if seeking my input. All I can recall about Lautrec is that he was dubbed Tripod on account of his impressive third leg. Heidi can see her sail going astray. Do you have any interests besides art? She asks. Classical music. You wouldn't have Mozart, would you? I adore Mozart. Our stock doesn't go back that far, but Mahler is available. And Brahms. And we just cleared Tchaikovsky. No. Really? Indeed. Heidi nods, her hazel eyes twinkling. He's the one. I'll take Tchaikovsky. Good choice. Heidi indulges her with a smile. 
they move to an unobtrusive desk at the back of the showroom. They review a rundown of the composer's achievements, his medical history, and possible genetic drawbacks. The woman asks a few questions. She was sold the moment she heard the name. She signs the contract and eagerly swipes her credit card. Heidi murmurs into an earpiece. Moments later, a willowy young woman in a tailored lab coat enters. She hands over a stylish, brushed copper canister. The woman cradles it to her chest. Though it appears tightly sealed, I wince at its proximity to the vintage silk. Try explaining that to the dry cleaner. There's a port on the bottom to test for viability. It's sectioned off from the rest of the specimen. I have a list of labs that can authenticate the DNA. If you return it unthawed in under 30 days, you won't be charged the full amount. But we do keep the deposit. Of course. How do I thaw it? When you're ready, push the blue button. It'll be good to go in 10 minutes. An applicator is included, and there's an instructional video embedded in your e-receipt. We pride ourselves on being user-friendly. If you ask me, it's far less messy than the traditional method. They giggle conspiratorially. Heidi could make a living selling snowmobiles in the Sahara. There's just one more thing we ask, she says, as the woman pulls on her coat. Prada, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, what's that? The woman pales. Send us a picture for the wall, Heidi beams. With a tap of the tablet, the gleaming wall lights up with several dozen portraits of infants, each more darling than the last. Well, Heidi turns to me once her client has left. I'm sure your readers have questions. Forget the readers. I have questions. Come on back. She leads me into a bare white hall and up a flight of stairs. I can't let you into the lab. The risk of contamination is too high, but you can look. She brings me to a glass wall, behind which a passel of technicians work in a room roughly the size of a tennis court. Some take canisters in and out of refrigeration units, while others gaze into microscopes. A few more work at computer stations. Toward the back... A small group sits at an empty table. Each wears a thick visor and black gloves attached to a bundle of wires. Their hands manipulate the air in a manner... Let's call it risque and leave it at that. Once I've looked my fill, Heidi ushers me into her surprisingly small and cluttered office. Correspondence and spreadsheets litter the desk while discarded scarves and shoes cover the floor like fallen leaves. She clears off a chair for me and settles into her own. Fire away. How does this all work? Generally the same as your average sperm bank. We've upgraded the basic tech here and there, but our donors are what makes us unique. So I've gathered. How do you obtain the samples? I can't go into detail. Our patents haven't been approved yet, but we've developed a method of interacting with donors who are otherwise temporally unavailable. If I'm understanding this right, you're using time travel to collect the semen of historical figures. No one is traveling through time, Heidi waves away the notion. Our technicians are in our time and the donors are in theirs. The only thing making the jump is the specimen. You're selling time-traveling sperm. Sort of. 
It does sound a little ridiculous when you put it like that, she chuckles. But I can't tell you more without revealing proprietary technology. Okay, moving on. How do you get the specimen from the donor? I had a feeling we'd be discussing that. Our technology allows for physical interaction, but no communications with the donor, which is a blessing, actually. Can you imagine the ramifications if they learned about their futures? With this method, there's no chance of altering history. But if you can't communicate with them, how do you get what you need? It's surprisingly simple. You're going to laugh. Try me. Nocturnal emission, she says in a stage whisper. She's right. I do laugh. Our technicians are trained to watch for the signs and simply collect the product and aid the production if necessary. Wow. Just wow. I know. It took some time for me to get my head around it, and I'm partially responsible for the idea. What would you say to those who'd accuse you of stealing from the dead? Heidi stiffens. They aren't dead in the moment. They're only dead now. And is it really stealing if it's something that would otherwise go to waste? We never interfere with the product the donor is using. But you are taking it without permission. We're aware it's a concern. If we could have them sign a waiver, we would. Sometimes a line or two gets crossed in the name of innovation. Which is why we've drawn up a set of ethical guidelines which we take very seriously. Such as? First, no war criminals. Hitler's DNA will not be available through our service. Not Pol Pot or Idi Amin either. No one even remotely connected to a genocide. Second, the mentally ill are off limits. Not just because of the genetic liabilities, but because we'd never take advantage of someone in that state. Then you do consider it taking advantage. But it's okay for the mentally sound? No, 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 not at all. We just don't want to risk the possibility of exacerbating a delicate condition. So, there'll be no little Van Goghs in the near future? Never. Finally, we don't use anyone currently living or with living spouses, siblings, children, or grandchildren. Why's that? It would just be weird, you know. I suppose. So... To be clear, I could be impregnated by the historical figure of my choice, like right now. Yes and no. It has to be a male historical figure for obvious reasons. And if you wanted it immediately, they'd need to be in our stock. We do special orders if the person fits our parameters, but we need to be certain the sample is up to our standards, which can take weeks of testing and we can't go further back than 1866. Why not? Our machines tend to short around September 21st, 1866. We're looking into it. So I can have JFK's baby, but not Alexander the Great's. Neither, actually. Kennedy still has living grandchildren. I sometimes wish we could waive that rule. We keep getting requests for Chaplin, but he had kids well into his 70s, and then they had kids, and they just live forever. So, as much as I may want to get my hands on Benjamin Franklin's spunk, it's not going to happen. Not with the current technology, but who knows what's down the road. What do you say? 
Should we schedule a consultation? I decline. But I'd be lying if I said I'm not tempted. I'll let others debate the implications of this venture. All I can say is my biological clock is ticking, and I've always wanted a climped. Well, as Valentine's Day approaches, perhaps these stories should serve as something of a lesson. Flowers and bonbons, gentlemen. Flowers and bonbons. Lest technology make us biologically superfluous to them. I know my former wife had certainly thought that I had become superfluous. I cannot count how many times she attempted to do me in. I should tell you about that some evening, but not tonight. I do believe it's time for us to close. Do visit us again next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution no derivatives license. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. If you like the show, do send me a Valentine's card so that I know that someone still loves me. I'm at Osgood on Twitter. Our theme song, as always, is Ashes Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. That's all's good with a number, ladies. Or gentlemen. Zero S G O O D E. All's good. Call me.